Please, brothers and sisters, turn with me in your Bibles to our uh, text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation, as we will uh, begin in Revelation chapter uh, 21 this morning, looking at verses 1 to 4. So, Revelation chapter 21 in verses 1 to 4. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, in order to, to better understand the end of all things, of the, of the present world order, it's helpful to understand or to begin at the starting point, at the beginning of all things. So one of the places I'd want for us to start to look at, initially then, to consider before we get to the end, is a text like Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, if you recall, God places Adam in the garden and He gives him a task. He, he commissions Adam to do something. But He says to him that he is to, to work and to keep the garden. Those words could also be uh, translated to serve and to guard the garden. Right? That was Adam's role in the beginning. Uh, those words are used elsewhere, though, in the Bible. Uh, Numbers, the book of Numbers, for example, to describe the work of the Levitical priest as well. We have one example of that in Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 which in speaking of the duties of the Levites says this, they shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And so what we need to see initially is that Adam is placed in the Garden of Eden as a priest unto God who was to work and to keep the garden. His job was to take care of God's first temple, which was in Eden. The idea is further highlighted by the verses that come right after verse 15, where God commissions him to work and keep. In verses 16 and 17, we read this then, The Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
So that what we see in verse 15, that working and keeping does not mean that all Adam was to do was to maintain the, the dirt in the ground. Right? Adam's job wasn't just to, to take care of the soil, but rather that his role was to, to guard the temple-like garden from unclean things. Right? He was not allow, not, he was to not allow any impurity to come in to this temple garden. He was to cast it out. Right? As the temple priest, he was to maintain its purity and maintain its order just as the Levitical priesthood was called to do, which was established later on. Now, in addition, we come to understand that, that Eden was God's first temple, not only, though, because of the work given to Adam to perform, but for various other reasons as well. Here are just a few. Uh, first, the garden was the, the place of God's unique presence. Right In the Garden of Eden, Adam walked and talked with God. In the temple, right? The, the priest experienced what? The unique presence of God, which was contained in the temple. Additionally, the, the garden itself was formative for the garden imagery of Israel's temples that follow. The Garden of Eden is formative for the garden imagery in the Israel's temples that follow. Take, for example, 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 18 and 29 and 32 which describes Solomon's temple in, in botanical imagery. In verse 32, he, he covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Likewise, in the Garden of Eden, in that first garden temple, there were precious stones associated with the garden. There was a river that flowed out of the garden. And it was portrayed later in Scripture as being on a, on a mountaintop. All things which correspond to Israel's temples that follow. Two final similarities, I think, likewise demonstrate uh, that the Garden of Eden was God's first temple here on earth. Uh, think about this. The Garden was the place of wisdom, wasn't it? In the Garden, you have the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which was able to do what? Make one wise. Well, in the temple, what was contained in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies? It was the law which was able to do what? Make one wise. And if you touched either, what resulted? Death. And then finally, the entrance of the garden was from the east. Likewise, with the, it was the same direction that one enters into the, the tabernacle or the, or the temples that follow. They come in from the, the east. Uh, what is also, though, important to understand about Adam's task in the very beginning in that temple garden was that Adam was to then extend God's presence throughout the world. Right? That was Adam's commission as well, to extend God's temple presence throughout the world. So not only was Adam a priest in the garden, but he likewise was a king. He was a king. He was called to subdue the earth in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over all the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so the, the goal of creation that God intended when He placed Adam in that uh, temple garden was that a world would be established in which you would have God being glorified 
through the faithful obedience of people all around the world. But Adam, just as he failed in his commission as priest in the garden, likewise failed in his commission as king. He failed in his commission as king. Why? Or how did he fail in his commission as, as king? Well, think about what Adam allowed Satan to do. Right? We just read in verse 28 that, that Adam was called to subdue all living creatures. But what happened? He allowed Satan as the serpent to rule over him instead of ruling over the serpent. And so he failed here in his commission. And so he was not able then to extend right, God's temple presence to the ends of the earth as God had intended. But this is what now we see though, right, in the, in the first coming of Christ that he now does what Adam failed to do in that commission. Right, Adam uh, plunged the first creation into death. But what does Christ come and do in his first coming? Right, he inaugurates a new creation to everlasting life. Think about Adam, right, in his sin. What does he do to the, to the first age, right? He, he drives us into sin and misery. Well, what does Christ do? He comes to inaugurate a new age. He comes to inaugurate a new age by casting out demons and defeating the devil in the wilderness for those 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus does what Adam should have done in the Garden of Eden. Right? Jesus now comes to fulfill all righteousness. Which is what? To set right all that Adam did wrong. This is why Jesus then is described in Scripture as the last Adam figure. Right? He is the, the second Adam. And part of that work of Christ, likewise, then was to establish a, a new temple and to extend it obediently. Only now, brothers and sisters, Christ is the temple. Christ is the temple. Think about it. In the, in the, the temple in the Old Testament was the divinely instituted place in which forgiveness of sin was to be had. Right? Sacrifices were offered for the forgiveness of sin in the temple under the Old Covenant. But now Jesus, under the New Covenant, has become the divinely instituted person through which we find forgiveness of sin, as He Himself is the offering of sin. Jesus is not only the temple, though, because He assumes the role of the sacrificial system, but He is the temple because now Jesus is the unique presence of God on earth. We've seen that in His first coming, didn't we? God dwelling with man in Matthew 1. We see in John chapter 1, verse 14, that as Jesus is is with uh, the People, what are, what are we told? And the Word became flesh and dwelt, or the, the Word can also mean tabernacled. Tabernacled among us. Now, in light of our text then, in light of our text, we see that in the, in the first coming of Christ then, He inaugurated all of these realities. But when He returns, right, in the second advent, He will, he will consummate all that He has started. Right, all that he began shall be finished when he returns. And what a burden then, brothers and sisters, off the back of every single believer here today and around the world, knowing that Jesus Christ has attained the goal through obedience, that which was held out to Adam, that he failed to attain through his disobedience. Right, because Christ fulfilled Adam's commission, 
those who belong to Christ now are no longer given Adam's commission. Why is that? Because through Christ, we now already possess eternal life. Through Christ, we now possess an everlasting inheritance. Right Through Christ, Paul says, we, all things are already ours. Unlike Adam, who would have merited glory through perfect, personal, perpetual obedience, we now enjoy the glory of the world to come. But we enjoy it now as a, a gift of God's free grace. And now He calls us as His people to live obediently in the world as our grateful response to what He has done. Right? Redemption for God's people doesn't mean then restoring us to fulfill Adam's original task. We're not little Adams. But rather, redemption consists in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, fulfilling Adam's original task once and for all on our behalf. So that we see that redemption does not consist in creation regained, but redemption consists in new creation gained. Do you see this? This is why Jesus came. To inaugurate a new creation. Why? Because this one is perishing. This one is dying. Which is why He calls the church to proclaim the Gospel so that we might make disciples. Right? He calls for us to proclaim the name of Christ, to make converts to a dying people in a dying world that they may escape this present world that is perishing. We are called to proclaim Christ to make converts who are going to populate the new heavens and the new earth in the new age. This is what we see throughout the entirety of the New Testament under the new covenant. This is what we see throughout the book of Revelation. Right? Jesus holding out the hope not of a better world today, not of a more peaceful or nicer place to live, but He holds out the hope of a new age. He holds out the hope of the new creation to people today. Those living in a fallen and hostile world. Those who are hostile towards God and hostile to the church. So that they might persevere as exiles in this world, knowing that when Christ returns, He is bringing home with Him. And then we'll have that better place we so long for and, and desire. And it is there then we shall see the world fully inhabited by God's people, glorifying Him in, in faithful obedience as faithful image bearers to God, which was the intention from creation. It is there in the new heavens and the new earth that God's presence will dwell with man forever as it was intended with Adam at creation. It is there in that final eschatological temple then that there will be no more sin or no corruption as God intended with Eden in that first temple garden that He created. Because the first order of things is presently perishing. As it will be purged of all evil. And the accomplishment of that has been made certain by the work of the Lamb who has been slain. right? Who now reigns on Mount Zion and waits for the perfect time to return to regather His people for a sweet and intimate fellowship with Him in glory. This is why then, brothers and sisters, we ought to rejoice at the vision that we begin to read here in verse 1. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. Remember what we read in the early chapters of the book of Revelation. Remember those seven letters in in chapters 2 and 3 to those seven churches? Think about all the weaknesses of the church that we read going on in those letters. Think about all of their trials, all of their suffering, all of their troubles. Here we see in the new heavens and the new earth, those things are no more. They are no more. Now in this vision, we read about the church perfected as they stand before God in glory. This leads us into our first point that we want to address, which is the world renewed. The world renewed. Introduction was a bit longer than usual, but I think it's, it's going to set us up to understand all that we see in chapter 21. And so it's, it's important to understand those things. And we'll draw out more of that in our two, uh, our, our two points that we have this morning. So the first one again, the, the world renewed. Now we see, brothers and sisters, in that the, the first order, right, the first order of things is something that is temporary. It is something that is not permanent. In distinction, though, to the, to the second order of things, or the new order of things, which, which is permanent and is enduring. And so we see there is a, a qualitative difference between the first things and the second things, or the original things and the new things. Now, what we also, though, need to see is that this new heavens and the new earth, this new creation... We are not to think of it as another creation ex nihilo. Right? We're not to think of it as another creation ex, ex nihilo, a creation out of nothing. Right? It is the present world renewed. Right? That is what the new heavens and the new earth is. The, the present world renewed. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, please. I think we, we see this in Romans chapter 8 as Paul is really comparing in some ways, uh, creation to, to man. And so if you look at Romans chapter 8 and beginning it at verse uh, 18, we see this. Uh, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So here we see that that creation is linked to the bodily resurrection. That creation here is linked to the bodily resurrection. Just as we will be raised bodily, we will not lose our identity, will we? We're going to recognize one another in heaven. We will be raised bodily and we will not lose our identity. So too it is then with the world. That's what Paul's saying. So too it is with the world. 
This is the whole reason why not only we groan, but the world groans. Why would the, would the world groan and want to be free of what it's subject to if it was just going to be wiped out and done and a whole new creation was going to be created? It groans and we groan because we both, all of creation together, longs for that corruption and the stain of sin to be removed so we might have true freedom and glory. And so the world, brothers and sisters, will be subjected to the purifying fire of God. Right? The, the world is going to be purged of the stain of sin. But it is the same heaven and the same earth rejuvenated as the old order passes away. As one author puts it, I really like this, that God doesn't make all new things, but God will make all things new. God doesn't make all new things, but God will make all things new. There's a great difference there to, to be discovered. Also, think about the story of Noah and the flood. Think of the story of Noah and the flood. We, we considered that last week with respect to its typological significance to the, the final judgment. But think about it, how it also is typological of the new heavens and the new earth. Think about how it's typological of the new heavens and the new earth. What happens? Remember, because of sin, God determines to, to blot out that corruption from the earth. And so what does he do? Right, he has Noah build the ark. He goes on the ark. And he causes this worldwide flood to come over all of the world. Which is, what? A, a purifying effect on the world it had, didn't it? It was symbolic of a, a washing away of the corruption. It purged the, the world in a sense, didn't it? So that when Noah and his family stepped off of the ark, in a sense, they stepped into a new world. They stepped into a, a new earth. And yet, it wasn't a brand new earth, was it? It wasn't a whole new creation, was it? No, it was a creation purified. A creation that was washed away all that defiled it. And so this is what we will then see in, in the purifying effect that God is going to have on the creation in the bringing about of the new heavens and the new earth. One of the ways that we will see then that it be renewed is through the removal of all that defiles it. Right? It's going to be a new heavens and a new earth because He's going to remove that which corrupted this earth. It makes no sense to make a new heavens and a new earth if you leave on the earth that which was able to defile it. And so a part of ushering in the new heavens and the new earth is the removal of Satan and the removal of all that is evil in the world. Right? And we see in this last chapter as Satan, the beast, the false prophet, and all who bore the, the mark of the beast were cast into the lake of fire so that nothing anymore would be able to lure or entice the people of God to sin. I think this is also then what the phrase, the sea was no more, also means. Remember, we've said multiple times here, and I think we've demonstrated it, uh, that the sea in the book of Revelation and in the Old Testament oftentimes speaks of what? Evil, corruption, rebellion. That's what it's symbolic of oftentimes. Uh, we've seen that with... Uh, the, the dragon in chapter 12, remember he, he stands by the seashore. In chapter 13, verse 1, it is the dragon standing by the seashore who does what? Calls the, the beast out from the sea. 
In Daniel 7, the four kingdoms of the world come out of what? The sea? In Revelation 20, verse 13, the dead rise out of the sea? In chapter 18, where does most of the uh, idolatrous trade activity of the world happen? The sea? Which is why the the shipmasters and the seafaring men and the sailors are crying out when they see Babylon destroyed because the, those who had the ships at the sea grew rich by her wealth and now it is no more. And so I think that the, the best explanation for the sea was no more is that. Not that in the new heavens and the new earth we're going to expect a, a sea-less existence, but rather all that the sea symbolizes Evil, corruption, rebellion, sin will be gone. It will be no more. It also means, though, that not only is God going to remove Satan and uh, all that defiles this world, He's also going to remove everything that defiles you and I. He's going to remove everything that defiles you and I so that in the new heavens and the new earth, you and I shall be in the state of glory. We will be in the state of glory. I don't know if you remember, in Sunday school we talked about this. In Scripture we see really a fourfold state of man. We see a fourfold state of man. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were created in the state of innocence. Which is to say, they were able to sin or not sin. Because of their fall, all people are born into what? The state of sin. Or the state of the natural man. And, and in that state, you are not able not to sin. Through conversion, through faith in Christ, you are brought into what state? Right? The, the state of grace. And in the state of grace, you are now able not to sin. But finally, what's going to happen in the final state? The state of glory. In the state of glory, brothers and sisters, this is why it's going to be so great. You will be unable to sin in glory. Unable to sin in glory. Now remember this though, in every state that man is in, man is free to choose what he does according to his will. Right? He isn't forced or, or compelled. No violence is done to the will of man. But his will, remember though, is determined by what? By his moral inclinations. This means that the glorified man in heaven will always choose what is good because his heart's inclinations will be perfect. It will be perfected there, and so they will always be directed toward the glory of God. Right? That's what we can look forward to and enjoy, brothers and sisters. Look at verse 2. And I saw the, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Right? The fact that God's city is called the holy city undergirds the, the thought that I have just said. This is the dwelling place of God. And because it's the dwelling place of God, it can be nothing else other than holy. It can be nothing else other than holy. Right now, you and I are are commanded by God, aren't we, to, to be holy, for I am holy. In glory, brothers and sisters, we will be perfected. We will be perfectly holy. In glory, we shall be that pure and undefiled bride. And we see that, that wedding imagery even in our text in verse 2, don't we? Right? Bride and bridegroom will celebrate wearing their wedding apparel. In glory, there's going to be an, an intimate union between Christ and His people. But right now, He, he prepares us right, to reflect that 
glory in the new heavens and the new earth. This leads us then to our second point, and this will be our final point, which is the unencumbered presence of God with His people. The unencumbered presence of God with His people. Look with me at verse 3 then, please. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. Brothers and sisters, here we see that what Adam lost because of sin, Christ has restored. What Adam lost because of sin in the temple garden, Christ has restored. In fact, what I want us to do, look at verse 3. I'm going to read to you what it, what it literally says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. And so what I want us to see is that not only, brothers and sisters, do we have the, the, the joy of looking forward to the return of Christ where we will be living in a renewed new heavens and a new earth, but we can also look forward to Christ right, being with His people face to face, dwelling in our presence forever. That is also what we have to look forward to. Now, Jesus, as we said earlier, fulfilled this in part in His first coming. Right In John 1.14, He tabernacled amongst His people. He fulfilled it in part. But this verse right, fulfills completely what God had intended since creation. Right, This verse actually fulfills fully the promise that God made in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 26 and 27. Here He says this, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Here we see in the new heavens and the new earth the the fulfillment of that. And here in verse 3 is the fulfillment of Leviticus 26, verses 11 and 12 as well. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul should not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Brothers and sisters, in the Old Testament, uh, the high priests could enter into the tabernacle uh, to see God's glory. In the New Testament era, for a time when Christ was on earth, He tabernacled amongst the New Testament believer who could be in the presence of God's glory. Right now we experience God's glory through the indwelling work of the, of the Spirit that lives inside of us. But in the new heavens and in the new earth, we will dwell with Christ in glory as we see Him as He is as we will dwell with Him face to face in the new heavens and the new earth. This is what Abraham was looking forward to, as we are told in the book of Hebrews. Abraham looked forward to that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Well, guess what? Here it is. 
here it is. Here is the full realization of the promise He made to Abraham in Genesis 12. That in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right? It is here in, in glory before the immediate presence of God in the person of Christ that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation shall stand before the Lord in unceasing joy, dwelling near Him for all of eternity. So near of, with Him that they shall dwell in one tent with Him. Right? They will dwell in one tent, His tent, forever. Christian, do you see what we lost because of sin? Right? Do you see what we lost because of sin? But be glad because in glory... As Christ restored it to us, we will now dwell under the shadow of the good, loving, and all-sufficient God. This is why Paul can say that our present earthly suffering cannot be compared to that inexpressible joy that we will experience in glory. You know why that is? Because we will be with Jesus in glory. We will speak to Jesus in glory. Right now we see God from afar. Right now we speak to God from afar. But in glory, no longer will He be afar. He will be near us forevermore. No longer in the new heavens and the new earth will any of us cry out like the psalmist does in Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself from me in times of trouble? He will always be near us in glory. And there will not be any more trouble in glory either. Look with me at verse 4, please. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Here we see, brothers and sisters, and one of the ways in which we will experience the great love of God. Who is it that's going to wipe our tears away? God Himself. God Himself promises to wipe our tears away. His love is going to fill our soul in the new heavens and the new earth as we experience the sweetness and the compassion of our Lord as He removes all discomfort and everything that causes us unrest in this life. In glory, brothers and sisters, there's not going to be anything that's going to there cloud your mind anymore. Right now, as you gather, your mind may have drifted off to different places. It might be clouded with your work. In glory, it will not be clouded with anything anymore. In glory, nothing more will, will trouble your soul ever again. There will be no anxiety in glory. There will be no grief in glory. There will be no stress in glory. There will be no heartache over loss in glory, for death shall be no more. Neither will there be poverty or oppression or pain in glory. Brothers and sisters, we have the privilege of looking forward to the day in which our soul will forever be satisfied by God. And for those of you who, who don't have perfect vision, in glory you will have perfect vision. For those of you who, who struggle now maybe with your hearing, in glory you will have perfect hearing. This is why then we should be rejoicing in the hope of glory. This glory then is the, is the cause or the goal that every single believer ought to pursue. 
Right? What, do, what do goals do? Goals motivate you, don't they? Right? Goals motivate us. It was the hope of glory then that did what? Motivated those first century saints to persevere until the end for the hope of the glory that awaited them. Because they remembered what their Savior said. Right? He said to them, to those who conquer, I will make them a pillar of God in the temple of God. They remember what He said, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to do what? To eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Right? This is the same thing Paul has in mind. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He says this, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Think about even our Savior Himself. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the sufferings of the cross. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we must keep heaven always in view. We must continue to to fight the good fight of faith. We must live heavenly-orientated lives then. Our thinking ought to be heavenly-orientated. Our speaking ought to be heavenly-oriented. Our our living ought to be heavenly-orientated. Especially because Christ, who is our life, is the one who is there. And we are living our lives now in Him. Labor then also to to make this glory and the way to this glory known to yourselves continually, but also to others as well. Because you see how excellent right, this glory is and the way to it is. And so we ought to desire that for our neighbors as well. Not just for ourselves selfishly. We ought to desire that for those whom we come into contact as well. Also, I want us to keep this in mind. I said earlier that Adam's task on earth as king was to extend God's presence to the ends of the earth. But when he, when, if, if he would have accomplished that, it wouldn't have just ended there. But to finish the, he was to finish that work in this world, and then he was to enter a new creation and sit down. And in that new creation, he was to rest. Right? That is what the tree of life in the Garden of Eden symbolized. Right, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden symbolized the new heavens and the new earth that he would have attained had he been obedient to God. I mean, we see that, don't we? I just read it, uh, what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. To the one who conquers, I will make him to eat of the tree of life. Where is the tree of life? In the paradise of God. It's already in the new heavens and the new earth. So with the fall, then we see Adam's commission in this world is impossible to fulfill by man. Right? Adam's commission is impossible to be fulfilled. The glory is impossible to obtain. But thanks be to God then, brothers and sisters, the, the good news is that we can still attain the original glory of the world to come that Adam lost, but that we don't do it by, by picking up where Adam left off. Right? By being new Adams, but essentially by resting entirely upon the finished work of Christ. Right? That is how we enter into the, the new heavens and the new earth and find our rest. Right? It is resting in the finished work of Christ. And the fact that Jesus is called the last Adam already excludes us from being new Adams. 
And to, to desire to be a new Adam is to deny the sufficiency of Christ. And deny the sufficiency of Christ's work. Right? Adam failed in his test of obedience. But brothers and sisters, Christ passed with flying colors. He, he achieved the new creation which Adam failed to do. And so He has left us nothing more to accomplish. We simply receive it now by faith. And we are called to obey, but even our obey, obedience adds nothing to the new creation. Right? Many nowadays are, are concerned with many different earthly endeavors. Right? They are concerned with politics. They are concerned with the conservation of the earth. They are concerned with uh, the arts. or They, they are concerned with, with sport. But I want us to see that all of those things along with this present age is going to pass away. Which teaches us what? That our primary focus is to be on things that don't pass away. That won't pass away. Right? The church and our mission then is to be concerned with hearts. Right? Changing hearts for the Lord. Seeing that hearts be made new because everything else that we work towards in this world, everything that we think is a good cause to pursue in this world is going to pass away with this world. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We see Paul describe this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. As those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, it's said in the context. We don't have the ability to get into all of that. But... Ultimately, at the heart of it, it's a call to treat the eternal things with utmost importance, recognizing that although we participate in culture and in society and in commercial activities, which are all worthy pursuits to, to participate in, all of those things belong to the natural order and will pass away with it. And it is only because of Christ, brothers and sisters, that you and I don't pass away with it as well. It is only because of Christ that we escape the second death. And it only is escaped through the grace of salvation, which is received through the grace of faith. Right? He will cause us to enjoy the rest that Adam lost for us. Right? He will reestablish his, his temple presence that Adam lost in the garden, that Adam was cast out of. He will feed us with the tree of life that Adam lost. As he will establish the eschatological temple in the new heavens and the new earth. He will do what Adam failed to do in protecting the temple of God. Right? Christ will not fail in that. We read that in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. Right? But nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose, are, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It is also, brothers and sisters, in the temple I want us to see that every believer, as the priesthood of believers, will be allowed to approach the glory of God as Jesus Himself will be that temple. 
In the new heavens and the new earth, I want us to see that Christ isn't just making a better society, but a perfected society. In the new heavens and the new earth, He's not just making better people, perfected people. Right? He's not just, just making a, a, a creation that is better than the creation that He made. He is making a perfected creation. And so let us live then to glorify God's name on earth, proclaiming His name until He comes as we look forward to God granting us this blissful, wonderful, complete, and full glory to come in the new heavens and the new earth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is, it is so true. It excites our souls. It brings consolation to our hearts. It allows us to walk in the world without fear and anxiety or worry as we know that all things have been ordained uh, by You and all things will come to pass as You have uh, called them to. That even Adam's failings and even all of our failings cannot undo the perfect plan of God as He will uh, reestablish His temple uh, in the new heavens and the new earth and where He will dwell with us for all of eternity. Lord, cause our hearts to, to long for that day Cause our hearts to look forward to that day that God Himself will wipe every tear away from the eyes of His people. Cause us, Lord, to likewise share this reality with those who are perishing, recognizing that when Christ returns, there will be no more chance. Now is the time to believe. Now is the time to to grasp on to the hope of glory. So, Lord, we pray that through the proclamation of the Word this day, You will cause even those here today who do not believe to grasp by faith that hope of glory. And we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.